Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America. And welcome to a special and solemn edition of the John Solomon Reports podcast from Just the News. Today, we're going to be commemorating the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. We released this this morning because we want to participate so that all of us, no matter our political stripe, no matter our point of view, no matter where we came from, where we're going, none of us forget what happened that day, the sacrifices that were made, the criminal terror that was imposed upon this country, the ultimate sucker punch, the failures of intelligence that we can't repeat again. We need to remember for as long as America is alive and vibrant that 9-11 is a day not only of infamy, but of solemn recognition that America cannot allow tyrants, cannot allow terrorists, cannot allow hatred to knock it off its mantle. And it is also a reminder that America, even when it's hit hard, has always had the resilience to come back, to fight back, to be a shining beacon, even when we've been sucker punched or hit hard. Americans get off the ground. And in those moments, the best part of those moments is we don't do an us and them. We're a we. Americans came together. And it's almost hard, given all the divisiveness we've experienced over the last decade, to go back and remember those moments when people would honk their horns and put flags on the back of their car and say thank you to any officer or firefighter or first responder or soldier or soldier's family that they met. But we were a very united country under President George W. Bush in the days and weeks and months and years after. We've lost some of that unity, oftentimes over petty political differences. But today is a day to remember that we can't lose that unity long term. We need to find the we in America again. We need to stop seeing everybody as our enemy if they don't agree on just one or two issues with us. One of the great things that America brought to us was the ability to disagree and still go on. Now, there is a generation, particularly on the left, that believes if you don't believe everything they do, you're going to get canceled, right? You're going to be canceled. But I think that is a small and vocal part of this country. It's obviously having very large consequences because some of those who participated own big things like Facebook and Twitter and Amazon. They're oligarchs. But over the long haul, the vast majority of Americans realize it's okay to disagree. Disagreements and debate 
are at the heart of all that we did to become this country. And we can't lose that ability or the respect that must come from recognizing that different political viewpoints are acceptable in America. I think we're in a temporary period of complete insanity, complete inaneness over the left's effort to try to make everybody think one way or you're no good. And I know there are those on the right who have the same intolerance. But the vast majority of this country are the same Americans that tooted their horns, said thank you to law enforcement, put a flag on the back of their car in the days and months and weeks after 9-11. The same people who ran and signed up voluntarily to fight in Afghanistan. The people like Pat Tillman, the great NFL cornerback that gave up his NFL career to serve his country because he was so profoundly affected by what happened at the Twin Towers in New York, at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., in that field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And all day today on Just the News, we've got live coverage of all those events. We have a super package of stories to just bring people back to that moment in time. And here on this podcast, we've got a very special group of folks joining us today. And I want to start off, first off, by thanking the extraordinary folks the first responders, the soldiers, our fighting men and women that gave us those moments, restored freedom, dignity, determination to America. Your sacrifice, it will never be forgotten. You gave your blood. You gave your lives in many instances. You endured injury, both physical and psychological, and you never stopped fighting for America. And we owe you a debt of gratitude, not only on this day, but every day, past, present, and future. We want to thank you. Now, I also want to thank our good friends at Policy Genius. If you're looking for car and auto insurance and, and homeowners insurance, they know how to save you money. And today, they stepped into the void and said, we're going to sponsor this special so that we can make something special here at Just the News at John Solomon Report. So to all my friends at Policy Genius, thank you for making this show possible today. Thank you for allowing us to create a venue like the podcast and the website and the videos we're doing today so that we will never, ever forget what happened on 9-11-2001. And if you want to show your thanks to Policy Genius, go to policygenius.com, sign up, have them check out your auto and home insurance. And here's a great thing. Beyond thanking them, beyond joining them and thanking them for supporting the journalism and the podcasting that we do here, you're going to save yourself a ton of money. On average, they save people $1,250 a year when they go shopping for you for your home and auto insurance. Who doesn't want to save $1,250? That's a lot of money. Can buy you a new iPad, a new computer, help pay for part of the tuition for the kids or something important to your retirement. Policy Genius, thank you. And everybody here today, please go to policygenius.com. Let them know you love them. Click on it and tell them how much you appreciate them for allowing us to have this 9-11 Never Forget special. All right. Now, we have an amazing lineup 
Former NYPD Commissioner Bernie Carrick is here. He was in the command center. He was there. He ran the NYPD in one of the greatest evacuations and rescue missions ever occurring in American soil. He's here to give us his recollections. Former Solicitor General Ted Olson, one of the great Justice Department lawyers of all time, one of the great private lawyers of all time, His wife, Barbara, one of my good friends, died in the American Airlines plane that crashed into the Pentagon. He was on the phone with her until the moment that plane exploded into a ball of fire in the center of the Pentagon building. He's going to give us his recollections. Frank Siller, you know Frank Siller. He's been on the show many times, the CEO of Tunnel to Towers Foundation. His brother, Stephen Siller, is one of those amazing images. We don't forget a firefighter who was off duty, came back on duty, ran through the Lincoln Tunnel with all his gear on his back, ran up the stairs of the tower, even though he didn't have to because he was off duty. He did it because he wanted to rescue and serve this country, and he died doing so. And then Frank took that tragedy and turned it into a charity that helps wounded warriors, those widows and children who lose their Mothers and fathers in the line of duty as police officers, firefighters, and soldiers, and the wounded warriors who they give new homes to. We're going to talk to Frank Siller about all of that. Congressman Lee Hamilton, Democrat from Indiana, retired congressman, one of the deans of the Democratic Party, one of the elder statesmen, a man whose bipartisanship is historic in Washington. He was the vice chairman, the co-chairman of the 9-11 Commission. He's here to talk about lessons learned and not learned. And then we're going to wrap up with Jason Bearsley, who is an important voice on veterans because we can't forget the millions of veterans who have served in the war on terror so effectively. They have wounds, physical and psychological. They have a debt of gratitude from the country that we must keep paying day in and day out. And we're gonna ask Jason about that as well. All right, now we're gonna have all those coming up. So stay tuned, this is a special. I wanna give you my own personal story about 9-11 because everybody, and this is a truism, everybody remembers where they were the moment those planes crashed into the towers in New York when the Pentagon exploded into a ball of fire, when that brave group of passengers, American passengers, took down the Flight 93, United Flight 93 in Pennsylvania so it wouldn't crash into the White House or Capitol here in America. I know where I was. I was the assistant bureau chief for the Associated Press in Washington, D.C. I was driving into work when the word of the first two towers came out and I began reporting it immediately to FBI sources and national security sources trying to find out what was going on. I had just passed the Pentagon in my car, just passed it, and had just turned on to the Memorial Bridge in Washington, D.C. when the American Airlines flight with my good friend Barbara Olson on the plane crashed into the Pentagon. I saw the explosion. I had a little tiny flip phone, one of the little, long before we had smartphones, it had like a one-tenth of a megapixel camera and I stopped People were honking at me. I said, don't worry, shut up. And I took a couple pictures on my flip phone to capture what was going on because I knew something bad had happened. Now, that's where I was. I want to bring people back because I don't know a lot of people know about this, but in the days leading up to 9-11, I was a front page story in Washington, D.C. and the nation. Why? I had been an investigative reporter for the Associated Press and just shortly before the terror attacks occurred, the FBI seized my phone records. Later, they seized my mail 
unlawfully uh, in an effort to unmask my sources. It was the first effort by the Bush administration to go after a reporter. It was done by some holdovers in the Clinton administration that went after my records. I was a front page story. Everyone was talking about it. There was outrage about what happened. AP was outraged. And all of that got washed away. All of it got washed away the moment those planes crashed in and took so many lives, so many of our fellow countrymen and countrywomen. There is no way to describe what that moment was like, the numbness, but my family had a lot of connections to it. We're going to talk to Ted Olson in a few minutes, the great former Solicitor General for George W. Bush, great Justice Department lawyer for President Ronald Reagan, a man who's won the vast majority of cases he argued before the Supreme Court, may have one of the best records of argument of any lawyer in history before the Supreme Court. His wife, Barbara, was a good friend of mine, and she was outraged, even though she was a Republican, that the Bush administration had gone after my phone records and my mail. And she and I were talking all the day on September 10th, 2001, and we were going to work together. She was going to try to help represent me so we could fight this intrusion on the First Amendment. And my last call with her was on Monday night. I knew she was getting on a plane early. Tuesday, California. She had just authored a great book on Hillary Clinton. And I talked to her. We were going to talk when she landed in California. And of course, she was on that flight. She crashed into the plane. Uh, Within an hour or two, I realized that she might have been on that plane, might have perished. And I called Ted Olson. I will never forget the call I made to him. He was numb and shocked. He had been on the phone with Barbara on the plane, even as it was descending towards the Pentagon. And he spent the last minutes with her on the phone, trying to figure out what they could do to help before that awful terrorist crashed that plane into the Pentagon. I lost a good friend in Barbara. I saw the extraordinary pain that Ted went through. But you know what I remember most about Ted Olson, my good friend? He didn't allow that tragedy to define him. He resolve to show America that even when you lose your wife in one of the most extraordinary, heinous crimes in American humanity, in all of human history, you have to show strength. You have to show every American we're resilient. We will pick ourselves up and we will be together as one in America, no matter how much we lost. And Ted Elson became the symbol, one of the symbols of resilience. He would not allow the loss of his wife, the tragedy he had endured, the inevitable anger he felt towards those terrorists to consume him. Instead, he thought about his country first, and he went on television, he went public, trying to rally this country. Let's do the right thing. Let's get the war on terror started. Let's get these bad guys stopped. Let's not let any more of these attacks. And Ted Olson, I remember that phone call late in the morning of September 11th, when I realized and he realized that Barbara was on the plane and likely didn't survive. I wrote the first story about Barbara being on the plane. She was the first identified victim of 3,000 people who died that day. But Ted took that moment, which he could very well have just grieved and said, you know what, I'm folding up. I'm going to grieve. This is my moment. Get out. He didn't. He invited his entire country in And he did so, and I think he'll describe this, I hope he'll describe this in the interview, because he believed it was important for the country to rally up. And even those who lost so much, they needed to rally the cry. Now, my father, Jack Solomon, who I revere, he's 80 years old now, retired, but he is really one of the heroes and inspirations in my life. He was a police chief at this moment. In fact, 
the president of the Chiefs of Police Association in Connecticut. He was in Easton, Connecticut, and his little tiny town lost a large number of people, including the youngest victim, a young baby that belonged to the Hanson family in Easton, Connecticut. And he called me that day, and I remember his pain in knowing this great family, Lee Hanson and Eunice Hanson in Easton, Connecticut. They lost their baby, grandchild, their young son, their daughter-in-law on the plane that hit the second tower in New York. Everywhere in my family, we had some connection to this. My brother, a young police officer, volunteered afterwards at, at the Ground Zero location. My neighbor across the street in Woodbridge, Virginia, an extraordinary man, Vic Badami, he ran in and out of the Pentagon multiple times through the fire, the smoke, the flames, and rescued people, selflessly not thinking about himself, but trying to get as many of his Pentagon colleagues out. That was my neighbor, my father, my friend. We all have those experiences. I just wanted to share mine with you. What happened after that, I couldn't serve in the Army or the military. I never did. I didn't qualify. I was too old at the time. I uh, decided I would take my reporting and try to find out how did this heinous crime happen? What did we know? And over the next several months, I wrote a series of stories that broke many of the major revelations about the government's failure to connect the dots. We're going to talk to, in a few minutes, Lee Hamilton about that. But the failure to connect those dots, I broke a lot of those stories. The Arizona memo, the Phoenix memo, it was called. The FBI, knowing that these suspected terrorists were in pilot schools and not acting in it. The Masawi memo, the idea that one of the co-conspirators was sitting in custody, potential co-conspirators were sitting in custody in Minnesota. So many major revelations. I won some awards for it, but you know what? It wasn't the awards that mattered. It was the fact that I could contribute to the dialogue, illuminate the country, like many of my other colleagues did, Sue Schmidt at the Washington Post, another great reporter, because the story the government originally gave us that we were sucker punch, we didn't know it was coming, wasn't true. There were lots of warning signs. We just had failed to put the puzzle together that was sitting right in front of us. And that led to enormous reforms of the CIA and the FBI under Robert Mueller. That was my small, tiny, itsy-bitsy little contribution but it was something that made me feel like I could do something for our country. I remember those days, and I remember the sorrow, the pain, the patriotism, the pride in country, the determination that were there. And then in 2005, still reporting almost daily on revelations about 9-11, I obtained the only reporter ever to obtain the classified CIA interrogation documents of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He was the mastermind, the man who sent Mohammed Atta and the other hijackers into action. He was bin Laden's right-hand man for this operation. He's still in custody at Gitmo, a very bad man, an evil man through and through. And in 2005, when I got those interrogation documents, I revealed to the world that the original plot was two coasts, that it wasn't just four planes on the East Coast, Washington and New York. They were also going to focus on the West Coast, eight planes simultaneously crashing in a short period of time. But bin Laden, according to KSM, shrunk it down because he thought it was too complex to pull off in one morning. And so it became half. It was like a corporate board meeting, the way they decided this heinous terrorist attack. And that was one of the many stories that I tried to write for our country so that they would illuminate and understand the mindset of these horrific hateful Islamist fundamentalist 
terrorist criminals. And then all of the failures of 9-11 inside the CIA, the FBI, the NSA. We wrote their stories not to put blame, not to shame the FBI or the CIA, but to create a roadmap so that policymakers, intelligence experts could pick up the pieces and make sure, rebuild these agencies so we didn't miss the clues of future terror attacks. And I think Lee Hamilton will agree with this later when we talk to him. The country made itself better at fighting terrorism in the aftermath of that because the revelations, the facts got out. Bipartisanship, there wasn't, this was George Bush's fault or Bill Clinton's fault or some other president's fault. It was all of us let us down and all of us are going to fix this. We were one country, bipartisan, not finger pointing, even in painfully reconstructing the missed opportunities. That was the 9-11 experience that I remember. And today we're going to thank our good friends at Policy Genius. We're going to walk through some of the frontline warriors of that time. Now we're going to take a quick commercial break. You're going to hear from Policy Genius. What are you going to do today? Do me a favor. Go to policygenius.com and go check out how you can save money on your home and auto insurance. Thank them for making this show possible. We're going to go to a commercial break when we come back. First up, former NYBD Commissioner Bernie Carrick. You're going to want to hear his remembrances of that day. And if you want to see the after action report that the NYPD created about what really happened that day, we've made it available to you for the first time at justthenews.com. Go check out that story. We'll be right back with Bernie Carrick, followed by Ted Olson, followed by Frank Siller, followed by Lee Hamilton, followed by Jason Bearsley. What a special. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Policy Genius, for making this possible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for joining in commemorating this day. We'll be right back. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly, and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, it's, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook a, a vegetable dinners and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you your 100% money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick house nutrition and of course field of greens all you got to do to take advantage of this offer visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code just news that's promo code just news at fieldofgreens.com don't wait go to fieldofgreens.com today use the promo code just news for 15 percent off All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised on this very solemn day, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, 
starting us off is a man who was on the front lines alongside Mayor Rudy Giuliani, watching those officers run into that building, watching those firefighters run into that building and give their lives to try to save Americans. Joining me right now is the former NYPD Commissioner Bernie Carrick. Commissioner, great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. It's 20 years now, and I I know you've looked back, you always look back, because you've never forgotten any moment that happened that day. But as you look back at that day now, what's the most remarkable moment you can recall from it? I think for me, there's two points on that day that sort of reflect in my mind uh, almost daily. I mean, there isn't a day that goes by in some way that I don't think of that. Yeah, I know that's true. Arriving down at the scene, I was trying to get into Seven World Trade where the emergency command center was for the mayor. And it was directly across the street from Tower One. And as we got to the corner, this was maybe seven or eight minutes after the first plane hit Tower One before Tower Two was impacted. But they stopped our vehicles and a cop came up to my car, saw me. He saluted me and he said, Commissioner, you guys can't turn on to the block. They're jumping. And I... Oh. I didn't know what he meant. I didn't understand what he was saying. Right. I got out of the car. I walked to the corner. And over the next two or three minutes, I probably watched more than two dozen people come down off of Tower 1 to the ground on Vesey between the two buildings, between 1 and 2. Some hit in the awnings over the building. They sounded like explosions, basically disintegrating into the <laughs> ground. That was one of the things that you don't forget. And the second... It was about five o'clock that afternoon. I came back to headquarters after going downtown with the mayor and I walked in. My first deputy, Joe Dunn, he said, listen, we have brought in the families of the 23 members that are now missing and they're down in the auditorium. And I had to walk into that auditorium with 23 family members, two of which, two out of the 23, not only was there a police officer in their family missing, but there was a firefighter in their family missing oh. as well. And uh, that was the Vigiano family and the Langone family. Oh, sure. And I walked into the conference room to basically tell them that, you know, their loved ones were missing. We're doing everything in our power to, to find them. And hopefully they're safe. But I'll, I'll tell you, John, that moment, that time for me was a demonstration of how resilient people are, even in a time of crisis, because it was those people in the room, it was those family members that gave me an enormous amount of inspiration and and motivation to do what I had to do over the next 14 weeks or so until I left office. It's just unreal. You were gracious enough to share with me, and we have it up on Just the News right now, the official report that you provided, Mayor Giuliani, sort of the post 9-11 report and it's just chock full of amazing details of what happened we forget so much you know the bar across the street that suddenly became a triage center and all the hospitals that kicked into you know a mass casualty event and did it exactly by the book they executed perfectly and you know the famous people we lost the great chaplain at the fire department the deputy commissioner bill fian right yeah michael judge right it has so many amazing things but as you look at that report what's the what are some of the things that jump out at you in terms of just all the things that happened in that you know that crazy week after the worst terror attacks in America? I think there's a couple things there. You know, the funerals for Father Judge and Feehan and Gancy, you know, on paper, 
it talks about their death. But in reality, 15 minutes after the mayor got to the scene, we walked down to West Street where they had a temporary command post. Right. And Gancy and Fian and Father Judge were all there. We spoke to them. They gave us their insight on what they thought was going to happen. We knew that we would lose the top of the buildings, uh, everything on the top uh, of the impact right. zone, uh, you know, bodies and buildings. Uh, you know, we knew all that. Uh, they gave us their briefing. And we were walking away when Father Judge grabbed Mayor Giuliani and he made the sign of the cross over his head. And he said, God bless you. He says, go in peace and please be careful. And we walked away. And I don't know, 30 minutes later, Tower 2 imploded. Right. And when it did, every single one of those men that we had just left, we just left them, mm. they all perished. So for me, it's, it's things like that. And there's, there's one other thing that comes out of this, John, that I think it, it, it encapsulates that report that the men and women in the New York City Fire Department and the Port Authority Police pretty much affected the greatest rescue mission in the history of this country. Yeah, they, they sure took did. between 20 and 25,000 people out of those buildings in the surrounding areas, and they evacuated more than a million people out of Manhattan into the four boroughs in New Jersey. That is unparalleled service. Nothing like that has ever happened in this country before. Hopefully it never happens again, but you have to give an enormous amount of credit to the first responders, the public servants in New York City for what they accomplished on that day in such a short time. It is amazing, and we forget how big that evacuation was, and speedy, too. I mean, it happened with extraordinary skill set, more than even a hurricane happens. You know, when you go down to the south and you see the hurricanes, everybody met their match. And, you know, what really it showed, you guys had a great program, didn't you? You had a good plan. God forbid something terrible like this happened. You had a plan, and it kicked in right on the money, didn't it? Yeah, you know what, John? That's a really good point, because, you know, what bothers me today, here we are 20 years after right. 9-11. And still today, there are communities and states and cities around this country that don't have preemptive, proactive plans mm. to respond to crisis. You know, we had plans just about for anything under the sun, anything you could think of. You know, Rudy Giuliani was crazy about being proactive, you know, constant mock drills, tabletop exercises. Less practice for sarin gas in the subway system. I can remember going through these things. Every month, we would have a mock drill tabletop exercise on some crisis. So we had protocols and policies and plans in place to respond to just about anything under the sun. The unfortunate thing for us is nobody ever anticipated somebody would use two yeah. jetliners as missiles. That's right. However... Those policies and plans and protocols all came into effect, and the response, as documented in my memo to the mayor, was overwhelming. Yeah, Condition Omega. That was the DEFCON sort of uh, plan that you had in place. Well, what did Condition Omega mean? Basically, that is every cop, every fireman is responding. Yep. Every precinct. You know, keep in mind, there's 76 precincts in right. the city. 
there's probably over a hundred sub commands. That means everybody's going. That means all vacations are canceled. And the other thing that happened under operational megas, I actually ordered the closing of New York city, which I don't think it's ever been done before. Right. We actually, all borders were sealed, right? Yeah. All borders sealed. The only people allowed to come into New York City at the time were first responders right. for the purpose of work. That's one of the things that stands out to me because I never, I, you know, I was involved and I was there and I was doing this stuff with the mayor. I never saw a bunch of the footage and a bunch of the coverage, but I can remember on the first anniversary seeing all these photos of these big signs, New York City closed, you know, at the George Washington yeah. Bridge. At the, at Lincoln. the Lincoln Tunnel, right? You know, and it was kind of weird for me. I, you know, I did it. We did that, but I never realized the impact until uh, like a year later on the first anniversary when I was watching the coverage from the year before. Wow, that's an amazing thing. You read this report, and you know it's written on or about September twenty seventh, which would be sixteen days after the horrible terror attacks. And we forget this now, but back then we still didn't have a complete casualty count. And it keeps saying the total death toll is still unknown. That was 16 days later when they were already beginning to get death certificates for people who they couldn't find and assume were in the well, building. But You know what? Keep in mind, John, we didn't have a, we still didn't have a death count, I think, at the time I left office, which was 14 weeks later. So there's something about this report that a lot of people wouldn't know, and that is, as police commissioner, I met with or I saw the mayor every day, right? right. I talked to him every day. Yep. But every single Thursday, the entire time I was in office, every Thursday at 1 p.m., it was a standing meeting that I would meet with the mayor and his cabinet, and I would present to them a report of what happened in the last week and what we anticipated in the next week. I did that for the entire time I was police commissioner. However, on the Thursday after September 11th, we did not have that meeting. The next Thursday, we did not have that meeting. Wow. So the first time I had that meeting was actually on September 27th, Thursday. Amazing. September 27th. That was my first meeting after September 11th, and that's why the report was given to the mayor. Wow. What you did, what Mayor Giuliani did, what President Bush did to rally a country and to rally a community back to its feet so it can fight the war on terror will never be forgotten. And, you know, there are so many heroes from Stephen Siller, who we know from T to T to others. But what you guys did, the leadership that was shown that day is never going to be forgotten. It was really one of the greatest moments of leadership in American history across all levels of government. And I just want to contrast it for a second. I want to get too political because today's not a day for politics, but you had this Omega plan. It executed. Democrats, Republicans, everybody worked together. We were all Americans, and that's why New York did so well the way it did. When you look at the way we end the war on terror in Afghanistan, and I argue we probably have never ended it now because now we're going to be fighting it in a different way. The difference in the planning, the difference in the execution, how frustrating is it to see what happened in Afghanistan after the way New York executed on the morning of 9-11? You know what, John? I'll give you, uh, I'll give you and your audience a little trivia that nobody knows. <laughs> okay. Um, on September 14th, that Friday after the attack, President Bush came right. to Ground Zero. Right. 
and he came to Ground Zero, and he met. That's when he stood up on that the famous picture, right? Phone. Yeah, the pile of rubble. Right, yeah, that famous photo. When he met with the mayor and I, he was infuriated. He was fuming. He was seething at what he had seen, and he said to the mayor and I, "They're going to be held accountable. I promise you." He said, "And you're going to be the first to know." He says, "I'm going to call you when we're <laughs> going to do this." So on the night of October 7th, right. I was leaving my house. I was on the way to Yankee Stadium to meet with the mayor. And I got a phone call from the mayor. He called my car and I answered the phone and he said, it's happening. Two words. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. So, Trying to put the that? reference there, right? Yeah. He says, uh, the president just called me and he said to call you and make sure I told you that it's happening. And I knew then that we were going into Afghanistan. Wow. As, as I was on the way to Yankee Stadium, we were going into Afghanistan. So I, I changed my, you know, I didn't go to Yankee Stadium. I went down to headquarters. I had the, the chief and my staff meet with me, and we started securing up the synagogues, the sure. churches. Public worried about retribution, right? Yeah. Worried about retribution. So that was, that was what was going on, right? What an amazing story. That we were going. I got that call from the mayor. And to watch us not end the war in Afghanistan, to watch the president of the United States, Joe Biden, surrender Afghanistan to the Taliban, to the same people we were going to fight on October 7, 2001, it made me sick. I mean, I was literally nauseous. And it's, it's, I can't tell you the disgust or the, 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 the anger that I have. But how do you think, how do you think, John, the 12 members of the 5th Special Forces Group that went into northern Afghanistan on horseback, right. the first ones on the ground, how do you think they feel? How do you think those first pilots feel that went into that country? Yep. Drop those first bombs. I, yep. The Moabs. I, I, I don't. I don't know, man. I. I it's. It's. Uh, um, I, I. I never thought. I never in a hundred years that I think that we would do this. It is a jaw-dropping moment, and I've been blessed to talk to. In fact, I got to meet some of the horsemen, uh, the twelve horsemen, this past summer. What amazing men! What courage! What pride they had in their country that they were willing to risk it all to make sure we got the bad guys. And I know everyone who served feels that uh, they've been dishonored by this exit. I think in the long term, we'll find a way to fix it because we're America. We get that done. But you're right. Right now, there's a lot of people who can't believe how deserved their memory and their sacrifices were by this exit. It's something we're not going to soon forget. But I tell you, today's about remembering all those amazing people that stood firm and gave their lives and, and got this uh, country and this city back on its feet. And sir, you were one of them right at the forefront. Your country will always owe you an enormous debt of gratitude. And I do for having you join us today. We're really, really grateful. John, thank you. Take care. All right, my friend. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back in a few seconds. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out 
higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break and very honored to have joining us right now one of the great lawyers in the history of America, former solicitor general, a man who's won the majority, vast majority of the cases he argued before the Supreme Court, somebody who served this country for a long time and who has a very personal connection to 9-11. Joining me right now, the former solicitor general of the United States, Ted Olson. Ted, great to have you on the show today. Thank you, John. I appreciate having a chance to talk to you. Uh, You've been a good friend for many years. I appreciate that. Oh, you're very kind to say so. One of the most poignant memories I have of 9-11 was around midday that day calling you and and asking if Barbara was on that plane, your wife, Barbara, an amazing Senate investigator, amazing lawyer. And I've never forgotten that call and that moment and all of that blur. But uh, that was a pretty remarkable and painful day, I know, for you. What's your biggest remembrance of that moment around being around the president and, and also getting such tragic news yourself? Well, it was a very, very difficult day of the entire morning. She had left that morning, and when I noticed my secretary came in that morning, I was at my office in the Solicitor General's office at the Justice Department. My assistant came in and had had me turn on the television, so we saw what was happening in New York, and not long after that. And I began to worry right then because Barbara had boarded a plane that morning to fly to Los Angeles, and I just, when I saw that airplanes were involved, I was very worried that, she might be on one of them. And then I got a call. My secretary came in and said Barbara was on the phone. And I was first very, very relieved that she was okay. And then when we spoke, she told me that her airplane had been hijacked. So it was, I don't know how she managed to get through on the phone that day. Uh, But we talked for just a minute or two. I tried to find out where she was. She asked me what she could do to tell the pilot and so forth. It was a very short conversation, but but very, very horrifying. Mm. The connection broke off. She managed to get through once again. I told her about the World Trade Center, and I had to let her know that that was happening. And uh, we said another word or two, and then it was cut off again. I think that's the moment the... Her plane crashed into the Pentagon, so Mm. it was a horrible, horrible day. Mm. And it took a while before we found out that, indeed, the crash at the Pentagon, which was first reported as just an explosion, was indeed an aircraft. And then we found out that American Airlines flight that she was on. So it was a very horrifying experience. Can't begin to describe how awful that day was, but um, it's seared in my memory. It has to be. Yeah. 
you showed such dignity. And I think that those who suffered the most also helped this country heal because all throughout this, the dignity and the kindness that you showed, even as you were grieving, I think was the sort of thing that rallied this country and said, you know, we got hit hard, but we're not going to take it. How, you know, being inside the Bush administration at such a senior level, you personally having experienced the loss of that terror, what was so remarkable about the response that America mustered in those two days after 9-11? Well, I found it was very, very important for me because the public, I think Barbara was the one name and one face that was flashed on the television screen that many Americans knew because of her many appearances on television. Right. Um, she had and, a great book. And, yeah. and because I had been involved in uh, Bush versus Gore battle and so forth, some people knew who I was, and I felt it was important, given how many people knew Barbara and people who were aware of me, for me to get out and talk yes. about the fact that Barbara was a resilient person. We were a resilient country. We had we had suffered a terrible, unspeakable tragedy, but we could not allow ourselves to be defeated or brought down by these terrorists, and that we had to show the world and one another that we were strong, that we would come back, that we were not going to be defeated. I felt it was very important as someone who would be recognized as speaking out about this to convey that message that life was going to go on, we were going to bounce back, and we are strong people, and this was a terrible, terrible tragedy, but we could rise above it somehow and move forward. Well, that message did resonate. I remember those appearances like they were yesterday. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years already. As you look at where we are in the war on terror, which, of course, as, as we all know, is a never-ending war. It's not going to stop anytime soon. How do you assess where we find ourselves today and what's important for the next decade as we try to continue to fight radical Islamists? Well, I think one of the most terrible things that I can imagine is to recognize what happened on September 11, 20 years ago, by turning the world back over to the Taliban, to turn the country and terrorists that were responsible for what happened 20 years ago, we have given them back the power and the resources to do it to us and to the rest of the world again and again. And when I see the pictures of the people that the Taliban have put in control of that country, and we know who those people are. We know what they stand for. We know what they do. One of the leaders has a nickname, the Butcher. Yes. One of them is on the FBI's most wanted list. Virtually all of them are labeled as terrorists. We know what they have done to innocent people, beheading, maiming, what they do to women and children. And we have allowed those people to take over an entire country and be allied with other terrorist groups. It is devastating. I can imagine two days from now, we're going to be recognizing and remembering the people that were killed and maimed that day. And at the same time, we're reading headlines of celebrations in Kabul and other parts of Afghanistan of the same people who are responsible for what happened. And how that, how we could allow that to take place is, is beyond my comprehension. Yeah. So many of the people I've talked to have said exactly that. They're so, so indignant about the, how do we make sure that the sacrifices of your extraordinary wife, of Barbara, of your, all the work you did in the aftermath of 9-11, what are some of the steps you'd like us to see take to make sure that we re- remain resilient against this threat? One of the things 
that, and I have a piece that's uh, going to be in the Washington Post on September 11. Wonderful. We said we will not forget. And President Biden said those same words a couple of weeks ago when uh, 13 Americans were killed at that airport in Kabul. We will never forget. Well, we have forgotten. We have turned that same country over this, to the same people who are responsible for terrorism. We cannot forget. We cannot let the leaders of this country forget has what has happened to us. We cannot negotiate with people whose only goal is to bring us to our knees, to kill our Americans and other people in other civilized countries in the world, and to subjugate and terrorize women and children and girls and not let them get educated. We can't forget that. We have to be vigilant. We can say what the president seems to be saying is that uh, we've ended the war on terrorism. We have not ended the war on terrorism as long as the terrorists are conducting a war on us. I mean, it's just inexcusable. And we will continue to suffer tragedies until we realize what we're dealing with. And that that war is not going to be over. Those people are going to continue to do what they've tried to do in the past, what they've done in the past, and what they're going to try to do in the future. Yeah, it is so true. Like the many arguments you've made before the Supreme Court, an enormous amount of wisdom in the words you just said, Ted. And I want to thank you first for what you did for our country. I know the huge sacrifice of losing Barbara, but you did. You were one of those people that just created resilience. And everybody said, if he can get up off the ground, we can get up off the ground. We're going to be forever grateful for that, sir. Well, John, you're a very, very dear friend. I know you were a dear friend of Barbara. She had such great respect for you and the work that you did. You were up there at the very, very top of the list of journalists that she always respected. She knew and I know that you always did your homework. You were someone we could trust and a dear, dear abiding friend. So thank you for that. I, I had the same respect for both of you and due to this day. So God bless you. And I hope this anniversary brings a lot of peace and solace because you deserve it for all you've done for our country. I appreciate it, John. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Ted. Good to talk to you. Okay. Bye. All right, sir. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. 
All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, someone who has dedicated the last 20 years of his life to helping first responders and our extraordinary troops because his own family lost someone very dear on uh, 9-11. Joining me right now is Frank Siller, the uh, founder of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation and one of my favorite charities. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, John, thanks for having me on, and thank you for your kind words, and thank you for your help on making sure that we spread the message to make sure we never forget. And, you know, what my brother did 20 years ago was exceptional. You know, not it many sure people was. would uh, put the, yeah, not many people put their life on the line like that. You know, you tend to think you would do the right thing, but, you know, the truth is that there were more people being saved going out of the building than the firefighters and the police officers that were going in the building. You know, 20 years ago, my brother was one of those great heroes. And I feel so honored that I was able to do this never forget walk to honor what he did to say thank you, Stephen, for what you did. And thank you to all the great heroes of 9-11. It's such an amazing thing. Everywhere I go, I tell people the story of your brother. And, you know, some still haven't heard it, which is tragic. They should all know it by now. It's such an amazing story. But it just gives goosebumps to people. And it just inspires you to reach out and be brave and be courageous and help other people. And you've been doing that for uh, 20 years. Tell us what this walk has been like. It's a little over 500 miles, the Never Forget Walk. What has that been like for you? And what reaction have you gotten in the communities where you've been? First of all, the walk for me personally has been a very emotional and very, very spiritual uh, journey. It's an experience that I thought it was going to be off the charts and it's even more than what I even thought it was going to be. And I've met the great Americans who have done so much for our uh, country and love America. I mean, that flags that people are throwing. Uh, it's unbelievable. They're waving it everywhere I go. People, uh, <laughs> people saying, you know, I love America. God bless America. Never forget. And so, and they had eight parades. We've had eight parades. That is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I was in Easton the other day. Yep. That's the one I saw. Oh, 300 kids in the Easton High School marching band. And it was phenomenal. It really was. It, it, uh, it sent shivers up my spine. There was a guy that had a big banner, 9-11-2001, never forget. Uh, and he was sitting on the side of the road. And that image is seared into my brain. But, you know, we, we talk so much about all the negativity and all the criticisms of our country and our self-criticisms. But that spirit of patriotism, that love for a country is still really vibrant, isn't it? That's all I saw, John. That's yeah. all I saw. I saw American flags on people's porches. I just saw so many people who care and love America. Listen, I want young parents to tell their kids of what happened 20 years ago, that Islamic terrorists try to kill as many Americans as possible, and they did kill 2,977. And I want the stories of these great heroes, not just of my brother, the Robert Curl a firefighter, in and out of that building, seen several times dragging people out. Right. A Gene Raggio, PAPD, who was also a friend of mine, who was out of the building, called his wife and said, I'm okay, don't worry, but went back in because he was known as the mayor of the Twin Towers because he knew everything about it. Of course he's going to go back in and save lives. You know, these stories have to be told. The man in the red bandana, Wells Crowther, who was just an ordinary, everyday guy going to work, but that day he put that bandana on and became Superman. He became Superman and saved countless lives. And, you know, although it is such a sad day, it was a it was a day that showed such heroism that we have to tell both sides of that story. And the last thing I want to say, not the last thing, because I know I'm talking to you for a while, <laughs> but I was at Shanksville and 
I was with a group of New York City firefighters, and I went down to the impact zone with Flight 93 right. was taken down. Think of those 40 heroes. We all remember Todd Beamer's Let's Roll. But think of those 40 heroes that took back that plane because they yep. already knew that these planes were being used as missiles into buildings and killing Americans on the ground. And they took it back, and they brought that plane down to save people's lives. That was the first battle on the war on terrorism, and we won that battle. And I, I'm so proud that I was there. And I put my hand on that boulder, John, and I said a prayer. Every firefighter was with us. We knelt down and put our hands on that boulder. And let me tell you, the emotions were pouring out of us because I was thinking of those heroes, thinking of my brother. I think of all the firefighters and police officers and all 3,000 families that lost their loved ones. So it was an experience that I'll never forget. And you're right. It was the first fight against terrorism. That was the moment it, it started. And uh, 20 years later, there's a lot of look back, obviously. There's also a lot of discussion that we are entering into a new dangerous phase of terrorism. When you hear these reports that terrorism may resurrect itself in a much larger way in the next couple of years, that Afghanistan could eventually become a base again for terrorism, which is what General Milley told the U.S. Senate a couple of weeks ago. What do you think when you hear those things? I guess it's a never-ending fight, right? That's why we can't forget. Exactly. That's why, John, you're 100% right. That's why we can't forget, because if we forget our history, it's bound to repeat itself, yeah. the good and the bad, of course. But the, in this case, we don't want another 3,000 or 10,000. You know, the more zeros on the end of the number for these people trying to kill Americans, the happier they are. So we can't let that happen again. Look, we are more vulnerable today than we were over the last 20 years. No question about it, because we're, we're at Afghanistan. I'm sure we don't have the same kind of intelligence that we had. Right. And, we, you know, but I pray, I pray that we still have enough intelligence that when they are gathering these terrorists and conspiring and figuring out how they can kill Americans, that we could just take them out and not miss them like we did years ago when we thought they weren't at war with us. They're at war with us, and they will try to kill us again, for sure. And I just hope we don't let our guard down. Yeah, so important that we don't. I've seen you on television talk a little bit about this. The way we exited Afghanistan, the uh, the people we still have left behind, there are numbers today, 500 to 900 we hear in some places. Any thoughts just about the way we exited Afghanistan and what it may speak for the future of our country? Well, here's the thing. The greatest country that's ever existed, we should be better than what we did and how we got out of there. I don't think many people argue the fact that how long can we stay and fight a war, but <laughs> there was so much blood and treasure right over there that we could have very easily protected our interests and most importantly protected our Americans and the Afghanis that helped us on the war on terror. You know, those families that are left behind, the Taliban and ISIS are going to slaughter them, John. And I hate saying those words, but it's true. They're going to slaughter them. And any American thinks that they're not is naive. So um, I pray for those families. We should have made sure they got out here safely. And the, how about the 13 Americans we lost in the final days there? It was so unnecessary. We should yeah. have been protected. It was disgusting, actually. And I've talked to a lot of Gold Star widows, and they're distraught over uh, on how we exited uh, Afghanistan. And I pray that somehow or another they smarten up and, and protect America. Look, John, you know what we do, the Tunnel Fatalis Foundation. We make sure if these kids give their bodies for our country, yep. the most catastrophically. You're just service members. We're going to build them a mortgage-free smart home. You know these old soft families that die for us, right? These men and women in uniform that Absolutely. die for us. They leave a young family behind. Our promise, our pledge is that we're going to take care of their families. We're going to deliver them 
and gift them a mortgage-free home. If we have to build it, we'll build it. If they have a home, we'll pay off the mortgage. And last but not least, we've got to take care of our first responders and most certainly the police officers. You know, when people spit on the ground, at the very least, that's what some people do, uh, spit on the ground. Instead, we should be kissing the freaking ground they walk on because they yeah. give us this great country and our society. We have no society without without these police officers. So we're going to make that promise that if they die in the line of duty and leave young families behind, Tunnels and Towers Foundation is going to pay off their mortgage. So, you know, John, I ask everybody, $11 a month, $11 a month, go to T2T.org. Yep. And for $11 a month, we can keep this promise. Hey, we better, as Americans, let these families know that they're not forgotten about. We don't want to leave them behind. If we don't do it, we're leaving families behind like a lot like our government just did in Afghanistan. We better not here as Americans leave these families that paid the ultimate sacrifice for us behind and eleven dollars a month we can keep that promise to take care of every single family that dies in the line of duty in America. It's the best investment folks you'll ever make. I did it and I love it. T2T.org. That's as easy to remember as possible. Go do it today. If you want to make a difference in the world, this is the organization to support. They're doing such amazing things. You've got a busy week ahead because when you finish this walk, your job's not over, right? You've got a pretty big uh, weekend on Saturday and Sunday. I'm really excited about the September 12th event because you're calling attention to those who got sick after the terrorism bombings, trying to help clean up and salvage the city. Talk a little bit about what you're going to do on September 12th. Well, we're going to read the names, John, of everyone who's died of 9-11 illnesses. You know, we made an announcement that every first responder that has died of 9-11 illness, right. that leaves a young family behind. We just made this announcement a couple of months ago that we're going to pay off their mortgage. But there are thousands of those who just were down there helping out, construction workers, crane workers, you name it. And they were down there every day on the pile. Firefighters are on the pile. Cops were on the pile looking for my brother. They were looking for their friends. They were looking for they their were. mothers, their fathers. And they were told it was okay. And it was BS. It was not okay. And now these families are seeing their loved ones fade away right in front of their eyes, dying of all these cancers that were caused because of the toxic air down there. And we want to read their names out loud on 912. We're going to read every one of their names so they're not forgotten because they are the forgotten group. And most Americans don't even know that, you know, the 2000 have died since 9-11 of these 9-11 related illnesses. Yeah, the toll just keeps going on. And that's why we got to be so invested in trying to help these families who've gone through this. September 11th, you've got the honor roll that you're going to do again this year, right? Uh, is it 7,000 names total? Is that right? Do I have that right? Well, we're going to read the names on Veterans Day. Oh, Veterans Day. That's right. Lincoln, right. On Veterans Day at the Lincoln Memorial of all 7,072 now men and women in uniform that died uh, for our country in the war on terrorism. So that has never been done as far as I know uh, that we're going to be doing it at the Lincoln Memorial. Actually, a friend of mine just told me that they every year read their names out loud in a small town in, in Jersey. And no I didn't kidding. even know that. But anyway, how cool yeah, is that? I love that. FBI, Jimmy Maxwell, the blessed sacrament boy that I went to grammar school with <laughs> years ago. And he walked with me one day and he says that to me. I said, Jimmy, I didn't even know you did that. I thought, I thought we were going to be the only ones that ever did it. But um, I was happy to hear it. And I wish that everybody in America, in their towns and the small towns would read these names out loud. 
It's a great idea. We should make that a tradition starting this year, right behind you with all that you're doing. As you look out now, and each of us, we enter into the third decade of the war on terror, what are some things we can do as Americans to help the fight? Everyday people, just, you know, people that have their job and their kids going to soccer and school, if they can get into school. What are things that you'd like to see Americans pitch in to do? Obviously, helping T2T Mm -hmm. is an easy one. We definitely got to do that. What are some other things that you would like to see happen over the next decade? Well, John, I'm going to say uh, stay tuned because well, I, I have some great thoughts and initiatives <laughs> that the Tunnel to Towers Foundation wants to make sure it comes to fruition because uh, it, it, we can't ever forget. And, and it's not just a saying to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. We live it. We live it every day. And uh, so we are going to make sure we stay true uh, to that. our first mission and when we started is that we never forget. And then, of course, we've got to honor the sacrifice. Right. And we honor the sacrifice by doing good, John. And what better doing good to take care of these families that are left behind. So, uh, but never forget, he's the most important thing from the beginning for us. Just like I don't want to forget what my brother did uh, uh, 20 years ago. So yeah. we got a lot going on. I'll be walking through that tunnel, retracing my brother's final heroic footsteps on September 11th. I'll be with my wife, my children, my grandchildren, my, my brother, my sisters. And uh, we're going to go through that tunnel to honor him. Albeit, when I come out of the tunnel, John, I'm going to be looking at a Freedom Tower. When he came out, he saw two buildings ablaze and uh, people jumping because they were faced with a decision to uh, burn or jump. And I hate to say it, but that's the facts. Just always just tell the truth, good or bad, just tell the truth. And and he ran into those buildings saving people and gave up his life. So so first and foremost, I want to make sure I honor that and what he did, and uh, what better way, once again, uh, honoring him by taking care of all these families uh, that make the ultimate sacrifice. It is an amazing thing. I have watched it and marveled at it. And Frank, you carry on an amazing tradition. Your family is uh, the best of the best. And when people forget, and we have these days when we're down on America, all I have to do is remember the Siller family. And I'm instantly reminded of the goodness that exists in this country. And we wish you luck in this week, all the way through Veterans Day. I know you got a busy time. I know you're working on new homes for so many of the wounded yeah. and also for paying off the mortgages. So every dime counts, folks. T2T.org, pony up today. I'm, I'm going to go on there today and add a second donation. You should too. Match me. I want everyone to go out there today and match <laughs> me. And let's double up on this. It's such an important I thing. I love that, John. Thank you. 200 homes we're going to deliver this year alone, John. 200, 200 homes. Mortgage trucks. 200 homes. And the last thing I want to give a shout out to my great team that was with me from, from the last almost 42 days that yep. I've been walking 537 miles. I got five fighters that cook for me every day. New York City firefighters that come with me. I'm going to be the only guy, John, that walk, walks 537 miles and puts weight on <laughs> the way that they're <laughs> That's so the love of the fire department. Yes, and you know why they're doing it? Because they want to honor their brothers from their firehouse yep. that they lost. And uh, it has been a, a walk of great joy, and uh, I'm so happy that I did it. But i, I got to thank everyone that, that's been praying also. And I know that you've been caring and sending me messages, so I appreciate it. Well, I'm 100 1,000% behind everything you're doing, Frank. You're, you're an amazing man, and you've made this country better, even coming out of a very dark moment like 9-11. So we're, we're grateful for you, and we wish you luck the rest of the way. Thank you, buddy. God All bless. Right. We'll God talk bless soon. America. All right, brother. Take care. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. 
Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews. And extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, a man whose service in Washington left a very important impact and who continues to have a big impact in the foreign policy and national security space, particularly former Congressman Lee Hamilton and the former co-chairman of the 9-11 Commission is joining us. Congressman, good to have you on the show today. I'm delighted to be with you, John. You wrote an op-ed a couple of weeks ago that just caught my attention. And a lot of people that I know have been talking about a very thoughtful piece on the lessons that Congress must still learn from the 9-11 era. And I wonder if you could just expound a little bit about what you meant and what what concerns you about the state of Congress today. Well, I think um, we learned a lot of lessons in the 9-11 Commission that... uh, have a lot of uh, validity for today. Among those was, uh, well, there are several that come to mind immediately, uh, but among them was the importance of uh, getting the facts straight. Uh, that sounds so simple. Right. It is not. But um, we understood that the first thing you have to do when you're confronted with a problem is to find the facts. It became a kind of a source of amusement, really, with our staff when Tom <laughs> Kane and I were working on these things. We had a reputation for always turning to the staff and saying, what are the facts? Now, that's one of two things you always have to do. Not quite as simple as it sounds. Right. Because facts are dynamic and they're changing all the time and evolving. The other thing you have to do, of course, and more important in terms of policy, is uh, to make recommendations. And uh, that has to be the focus of any kind of public inquiry, it seems to me, most of the ones I've been involved in. So those two things come out of my mind as we talk about uh, public policy. Yeah, such an important part. It seems today that the politics of the day, and maybe because it's a social media and instantaneous, but we seem to want to come to conclusions before we have the facts, and then we're always shifting, and it's like a, a sand underneath our feet. When you look back at that moment, I mean, the what your report left as an extraordinary legacy was a failure in the intelligence community, law enforcement intelligence, to connect dots that clearly hinted at what was about to happen, these horrible attacks that were in 9-11 
in the aftermath after you did your report and you had all these contacts and, and all the reforms that were done, how good did you feel that the intelligence community had been significantly changed by not only the experience of 9-11, but by the fact-finding and policy decisions that grew from that? Look, I think we learned a lot, and I don't have any hesitation in making the overall judgment that we're safer today than uh, we were at the time. Look, we put into place a whole department of government, and and we have made hundreds of changes in almost every government agency and department, staffing up with the real experts and uh, putting a lot more money, resources, time in the whole effort of uh, trying to make sure that the government fulfills its function of keeping the people safe. Right. So um, I think a lot of progress has been made. Now, having said that, a lot more needs to be done. And uh, so the work is still ahead of us. Out of the recommendations that you made, uh, what are the ones that haven't been yet implemented that you think are, are most important to get done even 20 years later? Oh, my, don't know where to start. I, I, <laughs> I said, the toughest problem I encountered, I think we've made progress on, but I still put it at the top of the list, and that is the sharing information. Government tends to become very polarized, becomes very jealous of uh, jurisdictions right. in sharing information and uh, working across not just departmental lines, but certainly that, but also even within the same department. There's a great tendency in the federal bureaucracy to say, uh, let me handle it. Trust me, I can I can do it. Right. Uh, that's I'm always wary of that, sometimes appropriate, I guess. But I think you need to make sure that your institutions, your groups, your people are sharing information. Um, If we had shared information that we had before 9-11, there's not much doubt in my mind, but that we could have prevented it. We just didn't do it. Now, we've put a lot of mechanisms into place that I think are helpful, but we've got a ways to go. Yeah, well, your report made a big leap forward for all those government agencies because it really laid bare the facts and then some very common sense reforms and and suggestions to get the government where it needed to be. It's been a long time now. I know it's been 20 years, but your recollections of 9-11 and the the aftermath, what most stands out for you? I mean, you're a man who saw a lot of history in your time in Congress and service of your country, but that moment, what are some of the most visceral memories you have from that time? Well, I I was impressed with the impact the events of that day had on the American people. It uh, it's kind of hard to imagine today when we've become so polarized and uh, the country's really become more complicated. Right. But uh, the whole nation focused on the events of nine and eleven. And I mean really focused on it. Uh, Tom Kane and I, uh, when we were chairman of the commission, uh, used to joke about it. We would literally, it would be impossible for us to walk down the street without people stopping us to ask us 
and give us advice on what we ought to be doing. Isn't that amazing? Uh, yeah. in, a, in the best of uh, spirits and always in an effort, it seemed to me to be uh, cooperative. Right. Uh, so that's one of the things that really stands out to me. I also became persuaded that those of us in government have to do a much better job of explaining to the country what we're doing. And that means on the road a lot, going to all kinds of places and audiences to tell them what you're doing, why you're doing it, what your problems are, what you think you can accomplish, what you cannot and uh, all the other things you needed to do together. All of this, coast uh, requires that you keep working together, team teamwork. You always had a remarkable reputation, sir, being able to work with all sides of the aisles, right? Your side, the Democratic side, the Republican side. How concerned are you about the polarization of our country right now? And do you have any advice for the generation that's there now in the Marble Asylum? What can they do to try to talk more about we in America and less about us and them inside America? I think you have to remember that you do not accomplish, I don't think, anything of lasting value in our complicated government unless you do it in a bipartisan way. You can do something as a Democrat, and it can be helpful, but it will not be long-lasting unless you invite the Republicans in, and vice versa. You can do something worthwhile as a Republican. But look, we have to have bilateral, bipartisan effort in order to do anything of lasting value in our country. The Democrats will be in office one day. They'll be out the next day. Right. The same is true of the Republicans. You've got to do it in a bipartisan way. Yes. So it won't be done permanently. We seem to forget that in this generation that we have now. And I, I've been watching this town for a long time. And your generation, I think, showed it could be done. This generation seems to struggle a lot with it. As you look out now, we're entering the third decade of the war on terrorism, and it clearly isn't over. I mean, obviously, we may have pulled out of Afghanistan, but the threat and the determination of the enemy is still there. What do you assess? First, start with that, what, how we exited Afghanistan. Any concerns about what we leave behind there and what could happen in Afghanistan? I think the first question that you have to address when you decide to deal with a country like Afghanistan, and of course it applies across the board, you have to ask yourself the question, what is the American national interest in this country. That has to be the focus. Now, let's talk about Afghanistan a moment. There are very few countries on the face of the globe where we have less of an interest than Afghanistan. Having said that, we have important interests there. We do not want Afghanistan to be used, by way of illustration, as a safe haven from which an attack on us or our friends could be made. Now, that's a very important national interest to the United States. We cannot do much with it unless we have bipartisan cooperation in dealing with that kind of a problem. So 
I think when I look at all of our problems today, I often say to myself, we do not sit down early on and spell out precisely what the interest is in that country. Such good wisdom. You're right. And all our foreign policy in the years where it worked, it always started with what's the American interest and then how do we achieve it? And it seems like we've gotten away from that that basics. The Secretary of Defense Austin, uh, General Milley, Chairman of uh, Joint Chiefs, have all said that they have an assessment that within two years, a, a terror attack could potentially be staged from Afghanistan upon an American interest. Lloyd Austin also said that he thought that al-Qaeda had a good chance of reconstituting itself in Afghanistan. When you hear our top leaders say that, what's your first impression about that? My first impression is they're right. Uh, There is a tendency we have to go after a problem hard, aggressively, oftentimes effectively, but we don't sustain it. These are not problems. Terrorism is a good illustration that we're going to solve. What you do is you manage it you try to reduce the impact of the bad things and increase some of the good things that we do. So I think you have to get your mindset has to be one of permanence and understanding that these threats come and go. They rise and fall in urgency, but they continue. And your response has to be institutions that are flexible and are well-staffed, well-resourced, and able to go with the flow of events around the world. It seems like such important uh, advice. If you were to, uh, last question, because I know how busy you are, if you had a moment to advise President Biden right now and the moment is in, he's got his, his ratings are down, people are frustrated with the images, what's going on, what advice would you give President Biden as it relates to security, Afghanistan, terrorism, the war, 9-11, 20th anniversary? Oh, my Look, presidents are busy people. They need a core group of people, of experts, whom they are comfortable with and choose to keep them advised on a daily basis of what the major threats to the United States are. And they have to focus with a laser-like concentration on what are the threats to the United States today. And rethink that question on a regular basis and then institute in your government ways to deal with it. That is great advice. Sir, I came to Washington when you were at the height of your power, and I've always learned and and watched you through the years. And your wisdom, your bipartisanship has always blessed this country. And I want to thank you so much today for participating in this special and helping us understand one one of the most momentous events in American history. And I thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we've got more remarkable guests just ahead. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, folks, we're here for the cleanup. 
Right now, the last segment of this great two-hour special. I'm so grateful for all of the great guests, and we've saved a good one for the last. He's been on this podcast before. Always brings a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight into the fighting men and women of our great armed forces who are the frontline defenders in the war on terror. Joining us right now, former Master Sergeant Jason Bairdsley, a senior advisor, veteran service organization liaison, all-around great advocate for our fighting men and women. Jason, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. What um, uh, what a heavy day and a very serious day to uh, to be talking with you and the guests that you've had on today have been fantastic. So uh, thank you for that. Well, we're darn lucky to have you. And, and um, we've walked through a lot of different aspects of the consequences and the uh, heroism and the humanity of 9-11. But the one that I really wanted to address, because you've been such a big advocate and such a cogent voice, we have millions of fighting men and women that served in these war on terror over the last 20 years. They have physical and psychological wounds. They just saw this extraordinarily ugly exit from Afghanistan where America's reputation and now its security has been jeopardized. And I want to talk first about them. How can we as a country serve them, support them in a moment where this has to be pretty catastrophic looking at all of the gains of the last 20 years going in reversal? Catastrophic is is exactly right. And uh, there's a heavy toll uh, the humans pay as we're engaged in these um, endeavors, these efforts. And a lot of us have started out very hopeful, uh, wanting to do the right thing and, and wanting to provide fidelity to the country, stand up for the nation, and make sure that we were rendering the, the form of justice that was appropriate. And so coming off the last month or so of the, what we've seen in this disastrous exit and the way it was done has really hit people hard. And the, the way to serve uh, those folks who have borne the burden of battle, as Abraham Lincoln said, right. I, I think is really sometimes as simple as when you're looking for the thoughts on Afghanistan or the thoughts on Iraq or this 20-year war on terrorism, these are the people that can best express it. This is where the hope is. Those of us who have had the burdens of battle really now have to step into a role of healing. And what I'm saying is a little bit of an inversion. If we are going to heal, if we're going to come through this with a sense of reconciliation, those of us who have deep feelings about this have got to find a way to serve others, meaning we come to you and and share the leadership, share what happened. It's not easy to do. Dialogue on these things is tough. So if you know somebody and if if you have someone in your life that's done that, simply sometimes reaching out, being able to listen, allowing for some of that dialogue to be a, you know, a cathartic sort of healing. It's not going to be easy, though. Yeah, it really can't. I mean, you yourself have had an amazing career, right? Two Bronze Stars, long service in the Army Special Operations, Joint Special Operations Command. You've seen the special operators because this war was not a war of mass soldiers a lot of times. A lot of times it was those special operators going in six, eight, nine, ten, twelve, fifteen times to carry out precision things. The, the special operators took a, an enormous burden of this war. Um, do they... Do they feel, I mean, I've talked to a few myself, and, and the sense I got is, I feel like everything I just did was wasted. Is, is, that, is that where a lot of their heads are right now? Oh, certainly. And uh, I want to start by saying that I think not the right lens to look at it in, but so many of us have that as a sort of start point emotion, which is, what did we just do? And uh, what was the gain? And there's anger. There's, there's, an, there's a deep sense of 
betrayal in a way because we put our lives and our families on the line consistently yep. over the years and we've had to come home from deployments and some some of us uh carry ghosts with us or you know darkness and we bring that back into the into our domiciles and if we haven't learned how to reconcile it then we see this disastrous exit there is no gain we've handed the taliban you know this uh, incredible armament to 95 billion dollars and we watch as our friends are still on the ground in those locations it's horrifying so so i would say that uh, for many of us that that is a start point but i would i would reach out to every one of our uh, peer veterans who have been down this road and just say listen the work you you did individually in your locations with integrity is honorable and durable and you have to disconnect that we have to disconnect that from the global strategy because we we weren't the decision makers at the policy lever level right. we were simply the men on the ground and the women on the ground doing our job and if we did that well we can look in the mirror and say i i gave mine it's up to someone else to have made the political decisions, hard as they were, wrong as they were. We don't have to own that for them. So what we need to own is our individual service. Well, I can tell you one thing they can own for sure. Everyone like yourself who served so bravely, they we they can own for eternity the enormous gratitude of this country. I can't think of a person that I've not met in the last couple of days who doesn't look with pride and, and, and uh, awe at all of the amazing fighting men and women of our forces. And I know that's something they can know. And I know we're going to own some difficult things from the decisions that President Biden and his team made. But this country, to to a person, I think, uh, uh, has an enormous admiration. We, we have the greatest fighting forces and the greatest character of our fighting men and women of anyone in the world. And I, I hope one of the things that this special does today is remind everyone, no matter what how you served, that uh, there is an entire 340 million person nation that forever is going to be in awe of your sacrifices. It's it is an amazing thing, and that that goes for you too, Jason. You you not only served, you've been serving since you got out and making sure that those your comrades uh, don't go down to a dark place, and um, uh, that is a heavy burden to carry every day. And we're so grateful. We really are. Well, thank you. And, and again, it, it's been an honor for me. And uh, I look at my family, my daughter, my eldest is. Uh, long enough where she was born right before 9-11, really wow. a couple of years. And uh, they don't see it in the same lens. Those of us who walk through it see it because for them, it, it's maybe more close for families of service members, but many in this younger generation are distant. They don't know what happened. They don't right. know people that were there. And there's a, some sort of conflict overseas that's sort of part of the norm. And what we can't do is allow this to become part of the norm. The, the America is built on the spirit of liberty. But if we allow it to die, if it becomes snuffed out by our um, the lack of constant watch on the tower, so to speak, from all the incursions of our of our rights, of our uh, constitutional rights, of the the breath of freedom in the homeland, if we become um, if we become ignorant of that or lazy of that. These things will creep in, and, and one of your guests, I think, said it strongly. We we expected after the 9-11 commission to see changes in things like That's right. oversight of the agencies or shared information or the transparency. Instead, we're, we're coming back to a place where information stovepiped, and, and Americans are now wondering, where are our liberties? We've come through lockdowns. We've come through uh, mandates, and, and, and people are angry with each other. You're seeing a lot of that. So there's a real um, disheartening that has sort of, uh, I think, settled in on the nation 
those of us who, who led into these combat situations, we, we have a continued responsibility to now stand up. And just like our Vietnam uh, peers and fathers had to show us after Vietnam and the, and the tremendous civic turmoil that came from that, right. they helped show us back the way to become an American uh, spirit that was uh, coherent and that was proud. It took a while. And, and some of those veterans stood up under pain after that long experience and, and yelled or cried or stamped their feet until finally we turned it around. And we're going to be back in the same situation. So I want to encourage every one of our, our, our soldiers, peers, Marines, Air Force, if you've been there, if you've done that, our, our duty did not end there. And part of our healing is going to come through serving back the community, serving back our family, serving them with your knowledge and your leadership and everything. Be proud of who you are and then express it. So That is great, great wisdom uh, that we all should ensure. Even those who haven't served should remember that that is the mission. There's a second group, those that are currently under command, under the flag officers who executed this kind of messy exit from Afghanistan. How do we support those men and women in the services right now? Because it, it appears from the own predictions of people like General Milley, of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin this week, of the FBI director in the last 24 hours, that we may be entering a dark period of mass terror attacks and more need for our troops to go back out and fight terrorism again. How can we support those currently in uniform right now? The best way we, we have to support is through our civic battle, if you will. The, the first battle is the civic one. I run the Association of the United States Navy, and right. that represents Marines and sailors who are in service and those who came through service. But here's what we do. We take the voice of the, the common sailor, the, the fleet Marine, and we bring it into the, the offices of our representatives, our legislators, to, to weigh in on these policies that are cavalierly written or written on a whim that suggests to fling our men and women into harm's way. If we're not at the watch on Congress, on Capitol Hill, if we don't force them back to recognize why we're sending men and women into harm's way, and then what are the gains with that? If we let them become lazy, they will become lazy. And and again, uh, Lee Hamilton, the vice chair of the 9-11 Commission said it, Congress still has to exercise meaningful oversight and feedback to these agencies. And if they're not doing that, we the people have got to threaten them with electoral votes or with you know consequences on paper and petitions the same way our founders established that we redress the government over our grievances what are our grievances you left men and women on the ground in afghanistan so the way we uh keep sort of a, a watch on them is through our voice through our civic voice when you see parents standing up at whether it's a school board meeting or the town council meeting uh, the same thing has to be done and applied in dc because your congressmen and your senators will get lazy if we don't remind them who we are that's the spirit of america Ah, such a great point there was a great exchange on your twitter exchange a few days ago that really is a good reminder you talked about seeing Afghanistan in a much larger, I think it's based on a bed you wrote, that we need to see the exit strategy so bungled and failed as, as one in a long line that goes all the way back to 1979 with the Iran crisis. Um, describe a little bit about what you saw and how the State Department particularly has been such a thorn in the successes of, of military action. Yeah, sure. I, what I was really kind of trying to capture is the sense that 
the tools of our foreign policy really come down to very uh, heavy schisms. One is diplomacy and the other is sort of the, the hard edge of the military and they should be used separately or in support of each other. But when we use the wrong tool in the wrong you know, place, we're, we're bound to see bad circumstances. So from 1979 and Islamabad and Tehran, and when we lost the embassies there, you can see the reaction of the administrations using military tools. When we go into other conflicts, when we came through Benghazi or Sana'a, Yemen right. uh, in 2015, we're, we're using, usually leading with these diploma, diplomatic tools, but in the face of violence, just like we saw in Kabul, when the enemy is closing in on the camp, the wrong tool to stress at that point or to lead with is diplomacy. These are amazing people. The foreign diplomats work uh, their whole lives to ensure that we have a modicum or respect with the, the, the neighboring countries of foreign relations. But when that is gone and we're now staring down the barrel of a gun, it's the wrong time to start writing demarches. So the State Department should not be in the lead when the United States military knows how to evacuate, in this case, the embassy out of Kabul. What I saw then was... Uh, simply a habit sometimes of foreign policy experts and folks who are in these seats long term. Uh, President Biden spent a lot of time on the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee and, of course, Anthony Blinken, uh, you know, as his advisor and so on and so forth. I think they just believed in the power of that to the extent that uh, whatever the generals had said, uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, Chairman Milley, uh, guys on the ground, Scotty right. Miller, these folks knew how to do this. And I, I, none of us believe that they were not aware of how to hold the Bagram Airport, hold Kabul Airport, and hold the towns, the hard spots, evacuate people. And when that was complete, then withdraw the military. Since we didn't see it, we can only surmise. And, and if you listen to our spokespersons, they are telling us transparent. They're being very open about this. State Department is in control. That was the problem here, and that led to some bad decisions on the ground. And we as Americans have got to remind and remember and impress our legislators for accountability. If people don't get fired, if we don't see resignations, these are very simple uh, things to go back and look and say, well, who made this decision? Hold them accountable. If we don't do that, we're not going to see the change that we need to see. Yeah, such an important thing. I want to go back. We've got about a couple minutes left, and I want to go back. The last time I had you on the podcast, you, you made some very, I think, prophetic statements that the focus of the military on all this wokeness and, and all, I think you later wrote an op-ed as well, but um, <clears throat> the wokeness, the social justice agenda, that it was a potentially dangerous distraction from what we should be focused on, which is fighting wars, saving people, executing uh, military and, and diplomatic missions uh, there. When you look now at how we exited uh, the war under the joint chairman chief who said he was trying to get in touch with his inner white privilege, did that distraction actually help create some of the chaos and mistakes that we made coming out of Afghanistan? Well, I would certainly suggest that the distraction of the focus, what, what the military has been highlighting in the ideas of, uh, you know, all the different theories, these are policies, these are human theories, right. had not much to do with hard material forces in disposition in combat. Those are two completely separate things. And one of the things I said in my op-ed is when you're in a firefight, you're not you're not worried about if you have enough uh, Puerto Ricans or blacks or Hispanics right. or anybody else, uh, you know, left or right of you. You just want guns. 
So, so the suggestion that we went into this conflict with our head thinking in different directions, the leaders have a responsibility to, to, uh, to lead the military. And when they're leading with these human policies that are, uh, they may be important, you might have to really discuss those, but the time to discuss them is not when you're right in harm's way. That led, uh, at least in part, to this, um, we'll call it just a, a, a malaise in the military where we're more focused on things that are not having to do with our material war fighting position. What, what that means now is we, we have a humiliation in front of the world, and China's going to walk right in after our Afghanistan withdrawal here and pick up the spoils. And our military has been embarrassed because it has appeared, or they will use the propaganda to suggest that we, we botched this. Our military did not. These are great men and women. They knew how to get this right. But because the policy led us down this other course, we now have to come back from that. Again, that's why I would say spirit of liberty in America cannot, we cannot suffocate it. We have got to stand up and hold them accountable. And then those who bore the burden of battle have got to lead in this discussion. Yeah, accountability is going to be an important part of this aftermath, isn't it? We've got to hold those military and diplomatic and policymakers who created this disaster accountable. That should bring some solace to those who were already given so much and give confidence that maybe we won't repeat it for those who are currently serving. Do you have confidence that we have the will in Washington to hold people accountable for what just happened? No, the will in Washington does not exist for that. This can only come from the people. This is a beautiful country. And when the people assert their privileges, their rights, uh, they will win over. When I, when I went into 9-11, I was in uh, a training camp for POWs, that's SEER school, Survival, Escape, Resistance, Evasion. And the whole camp is set up to indoctrinate and try to peel you off and create division within the ranks. They're training you how to withstand indoctrination. They're training you how to withstand psychological abuse. It's a brutal little training exercise. At the end of that training exercise, um, I, I, I broke down in tears. Many of us did because you go from this hostile environment to essentially what is a freedom exercise where you're being freed from the camp. And what I turned around and saw that morning, this is, uh, this is right after the towers were, were collapsed. So we knew that we were now at war. And for the first time, when I turned around, I saw the sun shining behind that beautiful American flag, and it brought tears to my eyes. The red, white, and the blue, and what it stands for, the men and the women, the patriots who stood this country up, that is the spirit of America. And if we, the people, do not hold that spirit in, uh, in value, in, in the preeminence of our, of our civic role, we can guarantee more chaos and disorder. But if we assert our rights, if we assert that spirit, we will win. Those are some pretty powerful words. And what a great way to close an amazing two hours with such great guests like you, Jason. Thank you for your service. Thanks for your passion. Thanks for the fact that you've never stopped serving your country, no matter what role you find yourself in. We are a, uh, when we forget sometimes and we're down on ourselves in, in America, we have people to look up to you and we say, you know what? America is still great because we have people like Jason Beardsley. We're so grateful for that. God bless America. Thank you, John. And prayers to all of our families today who are mourning the loss and the memory of loved ones who served in this entire endeavor. Amen to that. Well, Jason, thanks again. And uh, we'll have you back on soon. All right. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to go take one more commercial break. When we come back, some final thoughts, and then it's time to move on to the rest of the weekend. Please never forget 9-11, one of the most consequential days our country has ever experienced. We'll be right back.
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. All right, folks. I don't know about you, but I'm spent. I'm exhausted. Five amazing guests. Thank you, Bernie Carrick. Thank you, Ted Olson. Thank you, Frank Siller. Thank you, Lee Hamilton. Thank you, Jason Bearsley, for helping make this show so powerful. I've been touched by it. I've been brought back to those moments of 9-11. We all need to be brought back because, as the show says, 9-11, we never forget. I hope you have a great weekend. I hope you enjoy all that your family and your friends bring to you. Remember to cherish your friends. Remember to cherish your family. Remember all those families like the Hansons, like the Sillers, like the Olsons who lost loved ones in these terror attacks. May their sacrifices never be forgotten and may they always be turned to good in protecting this country from future threats. I pray that God blesses our country tonight and he blesses you and he blesses all of those around the show. And again, thank you to my friends at Policy Genius for making this show possible. Good night. God bless. We'll be back on Monday with our regular programming here at John Solomon Reports and JustTheNews.com. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it, with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friend, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now.